It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, I kind of predicted that Don Lemon was going to go off the rails. I talked about it on this very podcast. I didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but I could just sense. Remember, there was this whole effort to remake him. He was this, you know, aggressively liberal, anti-Trump, pro-democratic, primetime voice. And that was his job at CNN for years. But when Chris Lick, the new chairman, came in and decided to launch this morning show— and paired Lemon with Poppy Harlow and, and Caitlin Collins, they, they said, okay, now he's not going to be this ideological guy. He's going to be this fun morning show personality. And then, you know, the ratings were horrible. The executive producer got reassigned. And in the last couple of weeks, I've seen signs of the, I mean, Don Lemon went after the New York Post as not a credible source, even though this was on the Hunter Biden laptop, one of the organizations that has later authenticated the Hunter Biden computer, was CNN. So I could just see that either he was being encouraged to be more controversial or he was felt he had more freedom to be more ideological, going after Republicans. And then Nikki Haley announces for president, and he says one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Well, you know, she's making an issue of the age of, you know, uh, saying politicians should get a competency test over 75, you know, that wouldn't even be acceptable in, by the Constitution. But we know what she was doing. You know, we can't trust politicians from the 20th century. So then Don Lemon says, well, look at her. You know, she's not in her prime. I mean, she's not in her 20s, 30s, or 40s. And his female co-hosts are like, what? Are you kidding me? I wonder what they said off air. And he's, oh, no, 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 don't take it from me. Look up Google. I mean, he just kept digging himself in a hole. Yes, Woman can only be in her prime up to the 40s. For what profession? She's 51 years old. So now, of course, comes the walk back. Uh, reference I made to a woman's prime this morning was inartful and irrelevant. Uh, as colleagues and loved ones have pointed out, and I regret it. A woman's age doesn't define her personally or professionally. You know, how about just not going there? And he's off the air this morning. Not having to sit awkwardly next to Caitlin and Poppy. Uh, welcome. Hope you have a great weekend lined up. Media buzz. Believe me when I say I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. we got segments we're still trying to uh, plan out here, but it will air. I can guarantee you that. Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. Uh, Elon Musk is calling out a story about him that I and about a zillion other people picked up, uh, that he was unhappy with the level of engagement with one of his Super Bowl tweets and had a whole bunch of engineers fix the system or at least, you know, change the algorithm so that he was removed from any filters that might suppress his numbers. Um, great story. But he's coming He's coming with den- denial pretty strongly, but it's a week later. I mean, I, you know, if he had denied it the next morning, I, I certainly would have included that or maybe I wouldn't have done the story. Um, Elon's saying that several major media sources are falsely reporting that he's boosting his own platform. Where he's already a pretty big deal. Um, they said my tweets were boosted above normal levels. Uh, a review of my tweet likes and views over the past six months, especially as a ratio of followers, shows this to be false. He said it was a bug. 
a bug that was fixed that caused tweet, tweet replies, and he does a lot of replies, to have the same prominence as regular tweets. And then he talked about, I don't know, years ago, he told a joke about he wanted to buy Coca-Cola so you get cocaine back into the soda. Uh, and apparently that was like his all-time greatest tweet. And he said anything he's done recently, even though he's got, you know, over, well over 100 million followers, and at the time he didn't, um, hasn't been able to come close. Uh, and he went after this outlet called Platformer, which I attributed the story to, um, claimed the report was based on the words of a disgruntled employee um, who is in the process of leaving Twitter but hasn't gone to his next job yet. I don't know. Anyway, Elon says it ain't true. You know, on um, Martha McCallum's show yesterday, I got asked to do a piece about J.K. Rowling, of course, the Harry Potter author, and I hadn't followed it that closely. I dived into it, you know, this controversy that has dogged her since 2020 about that she's anti-trans, that she has uh, been critical of transgender people. And she's finally speaking out. There's a new podcast that's going to come out next week. This is part of Barry Weiss's new company, The Free Press, which just looks like it's doing all kinds of groundbreaking and fascinating stuff. Uh, Barry Weiss didn't do the interview, but um, in any event, there were a couple of excerpts released in which, first of all, J.K. Rowling says, I never set out to upset anyone. However, I was not uncomfortable with getting off my pedestal. And she went on to say, you know, in the last 10 years, certainly the last two, three years, particularly on social media, that what she's hearing is, you've ruined your legacy. Oh, you could have been beloved forever, but you chose to say this. And I think you could not have misunderstood me more profoundly. And... Here's what she said back in 2020, and there's been other, there's been little dust-ups where she liked a tweet by somebody who was anti-trans, but I, I'm not convinced after reporting on this piece that she is anti-trans. I think she's gotten um, a bit of a raw deal. Here's what she said. Here's the original offending tweet. If sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people. Get that part? But erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. But some of the Harry Potter actors, Emma Watson, Daniel Radcliffe, spoke out against her. Radcliffe saying transgender women are women. Any statement to the contrary erases the identity and dignity of transgender people. And she also says, you know, she's had threats to uh, blow her up, beat her, rape her, assassinate her. I mean, it sounds really ugly. And so I can understand why she now wants to speak out and kind of set the record straight. And you know what's interesting? In the New York Times yesterday, uh, columnist Pamela Paul defends J.K. Rowling, and the Times itself has been accused uh, by activists and others of not, of not being fair to trans people. Uh, anyway, Pamela Paul says this is a noisy fringe. Because, you know, when you talk about trans people, you could be uh, totally in support of transgender people, but maybe have a different view on uh, their participation on sports teams or use of bathrooms. I mean, it gets into a lot of complex political issues. Anyway, Pamela Paul lists the following statements. Trans people need and deserve protection. I believe the majority of trans-identified people not only pose zero threat to others, but are vulnerable. I respect every trans person's right to live any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them. All of those were uttered by J.K. Rowling. So it just seems like it's a narrative that's taking place that she has had a hard time 
shaking. I'm not saying she hasn't perhaps said things that are insensitive or whatever, but this has gone on for three years now, and that's why I'll look forward to seeing this podcast. Now, story number one, President Biden finally speaking out yesterday about the UFOs, the shooting down of the three UFOs after the downing of the Chinese uh, spy balloon. And, you know, how do I say this? Biden had to be pushed into this because first you had conservative voices on Fox and elsewhere saying, why hasn't he spoken? Why hasn't he addressed this? You know, we're using um, United States missiles to shoot down these craft, these objects that we don't know quite what they are. And on the one hand, I could imagine the meetings in the White House where, well, sir, you know, we don't really have much new information. We're not really sure where these are. And maybe you think, I don't want to go out there and not have much to say. On the other hand, this soon spread to a lot of voices in the mainstream media. Well, uh, you know, why hasn't the president uh, addressed the country on this? And then some Democrats began urging him to do so. And so he did it. And he could have given the same speech on Monday. You know, one day after, uh, remember, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Uh, Friday in Alaska, shot down an object. Um, Sunday in Canada. And, um, or Saturday in Canada, excuse me. And then Sunday uh, in the Midwest over Lake Huron. So the president said, look, um, if there's any doubt about the safety and security of American airspace, I will take them down. I mean, that's a pretty good thing if you're commander-in-chief to be able to go out and project strength like that. Now, he did say, uh, look, um, they do seem to be backtracking on what these things are. Uh, there's a story circulating that one is a, a hobby balloon you can buy for 12 bucks. It should be kind of amazing. And so Biden said, look, um, they, um, they, we, we're not sure. It may well be that they don't pose any danger. However, they're floating around. Uh, at 20,000 feet or 40,000 feet, that could interfere with the commercial airlines, and that gives me pause. Um, Washington Post story says these uh, objects have been described as car-sized, cylindrical, and octagonal, okay? Um, and now Biden is saying, uh, look, they could just be for research purposes, private companies, weather. You know, it is kind of baffling. That after a week, we don't know what we shot down. But I don't think it cost Biden anything to say, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's why I took the action I did. Here's why I shot down the Chinese spy balloon. Here's why I waited till it was over the ocean. Um, and then we adjusted our radar filters to deal with slower moving objects. Now, of course, you see some stories saying, well, you know, they totally overreacted. Well, what's the matter with these people? They're shooting out these, har they're shooting these harmless objects out of the sky. Well, that's the risk that you run. But still, I think the thing that this president doesn't get, and it's the same thing with his very limited dealings with the press. I mean, very few interviews compared to all of his predecessors, very few, almost non-existent news conferences, is that when there's an unsettling feeling in the country, when, you know, American missiles are shooting down objects and we're and he also said, by the way, that he didn't think these were related to China. We all assumed they probably were related to China. But I think when there is that fear, anxiety, or just a general concern about what's going on, I mean, these were going on 
one after the other after the other, three in three days. People want to hear from their commander-in-chief. Just the fact that he came at it. I mean, he can send out the Pentagon briefers. He can send out John Kirby. But people want to hear from the leader of the country. And therefore, I think what he did in speaking out yesterday was a good thing. It was good politically for him. And I think it was good for the country. Um, Biden has a low-key theory of the presidency. And I understand he wants to sort of, he, he vowed to kind of change it back to the way it used to be, a uh, quieter, more normal kind of politics, the opposite of Donald Trump. I mean, can you imagine if the U.S. shot down three UFOs in three days? I mean, Trump would be on TV every day talking about it, every single day making threats, whatever, whatever however he chose to handle it. And so I think the president finally did the right thing, but during those times— you know, narratives develop, people get worried, and there were even jokes about, uh, you know, UFOs. Well, there were, were there any extraterrestrial aliens? No, apparently not. Well, that's a relief. Um, what are we going to do about China? Uh, Biden is supposed to talk to President Xi today, and he says he's not going to apologize. I, mean, I think certainly in the case of the spy balloon, we let the Chinese know through diplomatic channels we were going to shoot it down. And the Chinese have come back with some pretty strong rhetoric, and so— you know, Biden wants to play the long game. He wants to lower the temperature between the United States and China. But I also think he has an obligation to the country. And again, you know, a lot of politics is optics. Um, when there's a devastating hurricane, often after waiting an interval for, you know, decent interval for rescue people to try to save everybody they can, the president shows up. Um, the president shows up at these kind of disasters. The president shows up uh, where there's been a mass shooting and to talk to families who may have had members, relatives who were victimized. That's what politics is. It's not that you come in with a magic wand and you're going to fix the problem, whether it be gun violence or mysterious weather balloons or spy balloons. But you show up, you speak, you take questions from reporters. And speaking of that, at the end of his remarks, Biden started to walk off. And I figured that's what he would do. But then he turned and clearly he was willing to take a couple of questions. You had this group of reporters, mostly network reporters, all shouting at the same time. It was cacophonous. Nobody wanted to let somebody else be the one to get the question. As a result... We got no answers because Biden said, well, when you have more polite people here, maybe I'll be able to uh, answer questions. And then he walked off because they were so competitive rather than saying, OK, you ask it this time and I'll ask it next time. And they just looked awful. They looked like barking seals. And then apparently NBC's Peter Alexander reported that Biden later call, called his cell phone and did answer a question about yesterday's events. But, man, that was embarrassing. Um, look, I'm, I'm competitive. I'd want my question to be answered. But, you, you know, this went on for a very long minute, it seemed. And as a result, the press got nothing. Okay? Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Story number two. 
As we look at the analysis and the bloviation and the fallout from the Nikki Haley presidential announcement, and I've talked a lot about that yesterday, Mediate is a pretty good piece about the way she is being treated as the daughter of Indian immigrants, you know, which is very much part of her story that she plays up. So she talks about her parents. Uh, My mom would always say your job is not to focus on the differences but the similarities. So Politico dispatched six reporters, not exaggerating here, to discredit her story, putting this out in a newsletter about Nikki Haley's complicated racial dance. It says that Haley has a fraught relationship with race. Okay, here's what Politico found. One, Haley indicated she was white on a 2001 voter registration card. Uh, The only other options were black, African-American, Asian, Hispanic, and other. Two, someone from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace offered a critical quote about Haley having an on-again, off-again with her race. Three, she went out and stumped for Herschel Walker, you know, the black football star and Republican who lost his bid for a uh, Senate seat in Georgia. So there you have it. She's a complicated racial dance. So, you know, this is one of those... Uh, regrettable and insensitive situations where some some say she's not Indian American enough. Some are saying she's too Indian American. Others are incensed. I'm going back to the piece here. And this really pisses me off. In fact, before I even get to this, let me remind you that when Barack Obama first ran in 2008, and look, it was kind of strange, this African-American, African-American guy with a funny name. Some of his detractors on the right would make a great show of calling him Barack Hussein Obama. Now, that is his name. But there's no question what they were doing, because Hussein, Saddam, you know, is not the world's most popular middle name to have if you're running for president of the United States. And so they'd always say Barack Hussein Obama. So now some pundits and others, maybe they just don't like Nikki Haley, are saying, look, her real first name is Nimrata. That's her, uh, she goes by her Punjabi middle name. Uh, Jamel Hill, black commentator at The Atlantic, wonders how Haley can argue that a racist, America is not a racist country after she supposedly changed her name. Here is a columnist, uh, Wajahat Ali, says he submitted a piece on Nikki Nimrata Haley, shamefully using her Indian heritage to launder white supremacy and GOP talking points. What? What are these people talking about? And Tiffany Cross, remember she had a, uh, she's a black commentator who had a weekend show on MSNBC until she got dumped. She chimed in with a carry on Nimrata. So these are all supposed to be progressives. These are also supposed to be liberal people who uh, think that, you know, folks of color, blacks, Hispanics, Uh, Asian-Americans, you know, ought to not be discriminated against and they ought to uh, be respected. And they're they're throwing out her Punjabi name or her given first name. You know why they're doing that, to make her look bad. And they're making themselves look bad. It's really sickening. You know, you want to say, I don't like Nikki Haley because she worked for Donald Trump, or she said she wasn't going to run and then she did, or I don't like the job that she did at the U.N., or I don't like the job that she did as the governor of South Carolina, or she has no chance to win, and here's why. All that is fine. 
Um, she throws her hat in the ring, and she's going to get beat up just like every candidate gets beat up. But please, can we cool it with these slurs? Because they are slurs. Let's make no mistake about it. And there's slurs coming from the left, and it's pretty sickening. All right, I'll try to calm down here when we get to number three, although I'm pretty teed off about this one, too. So as you may have heard by now, um, on Wednesday night, and I guess this kind of broke either late Wednesday night or early yesterday, John Fetterman, the newly elected Pennsylvania senator, the guy who had a stroke uh, on the day of the primary, I believe it was, uh, and has struggled ever since, checked himself into Walter Reed to receive care for clinical depression. That's according to a statement from his chief of staff. So the statement says, after examining John, the doctors at Walter Reed told us that John is getting the care he needs and will soon be back to himself. And there's a lot of different reactions here. Um, Look, a week ago, the New York Times did a story saying Fetterman is struggling to adjust to life at the Senate. I mean, it's a pretty demanding job no matter who you are. You know, suddenly you're in an office building that you don't know your way around, and you've got to make it to the Capitol for votes, and you've got to deal with constituents, and, you know, you're setting up your office, and you got a lot. It's it's just a steep learning curve. Last week, he spent a couple nights in the hospital because he had lightheadedness, but there were tests taken that showed no evidence of any new stroke or seizure, so that was good news. So Dick Durbin, who's in the Democratic Senate leadership, says this is an unimaginable challenge that he's faced in life. He deserves the very best and professional care, and I'm sure he'll get it. There isn't a single family that isn't touched by this, meaning mental illness, and those that are touched by it and succeed really are very honest about it. I'm glad John has done that. And his wife put out a statement saying, you know, after what he's been through in the past year, there's probably no one who wants to talk about his own health less than John. So the part that bothers me is... There's an insinuation, an implication that the press wasn't honest about John Fetterman's condition. And here's why that's wrong. First of all, it wasn't like he was hiding it. He had to go to that debate with Dr. Oz that was a complete disaster for him. He lost his train of thought. He would repeat the same things. It was clear that it's not that he's a dumb guy. It's clear that he had trouble hearing uh, even with uh, closed captioning, and communicating in real time. Remember there was that NBC reporter, Dasha Burns, who talked about when, it, when they weren't sort of doing the interview and he seemed confused, uh, difficult to make small talk, and she got denounced by all these left-leaning journalists? Well, she was right. But there was no way to know in August, September, and October of the election year last fall where John Fetterman would be in terms of his progress. First of all, I've seen uh, Sanjay Gupta of CNN say that about a third of all stroke victims do suffer from clinical depression. Secondly, if he has clinical depression, it's a good thing that not only is he open about it, but that he decided to check himself into the hospital. But also there was a reference in this Time story last week saying that he had struggled with depression throughout his life. And it was like, aha, they were holding that back. Well, maybe they didn't know it. You know, it's not like Fedman was the one thing I did criticize Fedman for. He was not that he was not forthcoming at all. He wouldn't release his medical records. So we had to take his word for it that however he was feeling and all that. 
And then there were subsequent interviews with journalists where he did a little bit better, but not always, and had the closed captioning and all that. In any event, I think the only proper response here is some sympathy for him and his family. He's trying to get help. There are two other members of the Senate, as was pointed out during last fall's campaign, who suffered strokes, recovered, and are now pretty fully functioning members of the United States Senate. Maybe three months from now or six months from now, Fetterman will have recovered further from his stroke and be, find it easier to communicate. Maybe he will get over the depression. And look, if these challenges can't be overcome, maybe he will decide that he could, can't serve as a senator from Pennsylvania. But I just... The idea that, you know, we had a secret file on Fetterman or something is just wrong. We watched it along with everyone else. Although, again, the way in which some pretty big-name journalists beat up on NBC's Dasha Burns for doing her job, she wasn't trashing him, she was just giving an honest account of what it's like to talk to him off camera, was one of the more shameful episodes in media history. And it's got plenty of uh, competition for that. Let me, let me just make that clear. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, number four. So this Georgia grand jury, there's been a big drumbeat, a big buildup, because part of the special grand jury's report was going to be made public yesterday, and indeed was. I always thought, because the DA in Fulton County, that's Atlanta, has said that she is close to making a decision on indictments, that there wouldn't be a whole hell of a lot in what was made public, and indeed, there wasn't. It was nine, I think, heavily redacted pages. It said two noteworthy things. One is the grand jury uh, said that they found no evidence of fraud, election fraud in Georgia, during 2020, despite Donald Trump's claims to uh, overturn the election. And then it also said, this report, that some witnesses may have lied under oath during their testimony, and it recommended that charges be filed. So that led to, and I saw this in several places, um, there'd be a headline that would say, Grand Jury Recommends Perjury Charges, and there'd be a picture of Trump. Well, the investigation is ultimately about Trump, but there's no conceivable perjury charges against Donald Trump because he was never interviewed by the grand jury. He was never questioned. He, the, the DA's office never reached out to talk to him. So it's not him. It could, there were 75 witnesses. It could be one of the more prominent ones like Rudy. We have no idea. Perhaps we will find out soon. And I'm not saying that's not worth reporting, but, you know, MSNBC went into it's like, let's get the legal experts on and talk about this for an hour kind of thing. And um, I just think... Here's the exact quote. A majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. But not much else in here. It said the election was not marked by widespread fraud. So this happens so often, I mean, especially with Trump, where it's, okay, we're going to get the Mueller report. We're going to get this report. This is going to blow them out of the sky. This is going to be bad. Um, he's finally going to be held accountable. It's still going on. With uh, I talked yesterday about the Justice Department investigation. Jack Smith is the special counsel and how aggressive he is being 
uh, trying to, uh, he's subpoenaed Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff. He's trying to get his lawyer to talk. Um, and I don't know where that's going. I'm still skeptical there'll be an indictment, but uh, Smith is certainly a, leaving no stone unturned. But, you know, when you have the buildup and it's on the screen, you know, today, Georgia grand jury report, and it comes out and it's kind of a nothing burger. I mean, serious issues, and, and I take perjury seriously, but we don't know who it is. I think to then decide, okay, well, we, we, you know, we have all these guests lined up, so let's just talk about it all night is not the right way to go. Number five, let's wrap up with this. And it raises some interesting questions that maybe I'll have an intelligent thing or two to say about. Um, according to an outfit called Insider Intelligence, and this um, was picked up in a few different places, for the first time ever, American adults will spend more time this year watching digital video on platforms such as Netflix, TikTok, and YouTube than viewing traditional television. Now, it's a forecast, but it sounds right, and let's say it's even close. I mean, think about what an earthquake that is, and what a milestone compared to where we all were 10 years ago compared to where you were when you went to the store to take out the Blockbuster discs and then return them late and pay the late fee. Um, so let's see here. Um, average daily digital video watching, 52%, amounting to three hours and 11 minutes per person. That's a lot. Um, whereas linear TV amounts for less than 50%. I don't have the exact figure here from this write-up. Um, the guy from Insider Intelligence says this milestone is driven by people spending more and more time watching video on their biggest and smallest screens, whether it's an immersive drama on a connected TV or a viral clip on a smartphone. goes on to say that teenagers and their preference for uh, social video and streaming video um, that this is going to move even more in that direction. Netflix and YouTube are neck-and-neck neck leaders when it comes to this area of capturing the audience. U.S. adults tuning in for about 33 minutes daily on average at each platform. Well, that doesn't sound so high, but of course it's just an average. So it means somebody may have 100 minutes and somebody may have five minutes. Um also, now that you can watch certain sporting events, I mean, Amazon is getting into this with NFL football on Thursday nights. You can watch it streaming on your phone or on your computer. That also is taking away eyeballs from traditional TV. And then TikTok is huge, and you already knew that. Now, it's a little bit apples and oranges to compare TikTok, for example, where a lot of the content is generated by the users, particularly the younger people who love TikTok and, you know, use it for all sorts of memes. And this is leaving aside, you know, the national security implications and it's owned by China and all that. But I still come back to, you know, having grown up in a world, a black and white TV world, where you watched what was put on because that was the only choice you had. In a lot of cities, there were three networks and a local station. When I grew up in New York, you know, there were the three networks. There was what became Fox, which was at one time called Metro Media, and a couple other local stations, and that was it. 
later on, you got a VCR, so you could tape something. I mean, even the idea of watching things when you want was revolutionary at the time. I know it sounds like a ridiculously common thing now. But here's where I have to find some fault, because that's my job. In the 10 years or so, just using that roughly, that Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and HBO Max and uh, what else, Paramount uh, and Apple TV have all gotten into the game, spent a lot of money, although there's some of them are now trying to spend less money, particularly on podcasts, to hire top talent and top showrunners and top producers. What has network TV done to improve itself? What have ABC, CBS, NBC, and I guess Fox Broadcast done to make their offerings more compelling? Well, you can point to this or that show. It's really good. But basically, I mean, there is, they're in a bit of a box because they have to try to appeal to the lowest common denominator. In other words, they have to attract a mass audience that they sell to advertisers, whereas Netflix it can get, using it as an example, can get a big hit out of something that attracts people who are only interested in, you know, fill in the blank. Um, movies about African-Americans, movies about sports, uh, television series about true crime. You know, they, they can find their niche. But still, I kind of feel like you know, the networks just sort of accepted this. It's, it's analogous to the way the networks, and of course I'm not taking away from the network evening newscasts and the network morning shows, but basically, you know, the, uh, the, the dominance of cable news now, the three cable news networks, compared to it's the first thing you think to turn to when there's a breaking news event because if it's the middle of the day, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, they, they have their entertainment shows on. Um, or they have local news that isn't maybe equipped to do such a great job on some national or international story. But my bottom line is, I don't think, and maybe they just decided to hunker down and try to hold on to the audience they have, but I don't think these huge networks, which basically dominated our lives for decades, and when they first came on, it was like, well, we'll just kill radio, but there ends up being enough audience for lots of formats. I don't think they've done really much to be more exciting, to be more compelling, to be more risk-taking. Also, you can't curse on network TV, and you very much can do it on the, these other outlets. You may have noticed that. So not to kick them when they're down, but we all see the trend in which this is going, and that's why, you know, at least on the news side and, and, and on the sports side as well, uh, the major broadcast networks are trying to get into streaming also because they know that's the future. They know that's what younger people like. And, you know, I, if you told me in an era when I was going to movie theaters and seeing things on the big screen, that would I want to watch a major movie on a, you know, a little, what is it, you know, 10 by 5 phone that I can slip in my pocket? I would, pocket, I would say, no way. But I do it all the time now. Habits change. And also, if you offer a product that attracts enough people, um, they will find it. And if there's a different way of delivering it, they will get used to it. At least that's what I think the lesson is here. With that, I hope you all have a great weekend. I guess it's a three-day weekend coming up with President's Day. I do think I'll do a podcast on Monday in case you had enough of what else you're doing. Again, media buzz on Sunday morning. 
We'll be back here and see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.